I'm Non Tennant. And I'm Michael Foster, and you're listening to It's Good to Be a Man, the podcast where we're extending God's house and father rule by helping men to establish their own houses in strength, workmanship, and wisdom. What are we talking about this show, Non? Today, we are going to talk about cage stages. And in particular, we're going to look at the cage stage that many people go through when they, when many men go through when they come to terms with the concept of patriarchy and how you can deal with it and get through it without going entirely insane. All right, let's do it. So, Nan, you said cage stage patriarchy. What is a cage stage? A cage stage is essentially a period after a kind of conversion experience. It's a term that's often applied to Calvinists, um, but in our case, we're going to be looking at patriarchalists. It's a time when you have a sort of excessive zeal that leads you to overcorrect from whatever position you previously held. So, you know, going from blue pill to red pill. And the main thing that you'll notice about a cage stage is that everything becomes very black and white and your tendency is to radicalize everything and that alienates people from you um, (laughs) in a fairly obvious way. And even people who would be otherwise likely to agree with you tend to get very turned off by that. Sure. It's like when you burn your eggs one morning and you're upset and you tell your cage stage friend, man, I burned my eggs. I'm upset. And he says to you, well, that's what the Lord had ordained. There's no reason to be upset about it. He's going to punch him in his Calvinist face at that moment. Correct. Okay. So how does cage stage patriarchy differ from, I, I don't know, what's some characteristics of it? How would you describe it? Sure. Generally speaking, there are some common patterns. So you'll notice the cage stage patriarchalists tend to dismiss the concerns of their wives about the trajectory that they're on or any women in general by saying that it's because they've been brainwashed by feminist propaganda. So they've got this filter that everything gets read through, even when the concerns are valid, they often will forget that their wife or their mother or their sisters or their female friends really exist at all and lump them in with the enemy, even when they've really done them no wrong at all. And they are not generally particularly feministic they make patriarchy the central issue for everything. So it becomes like the overriding um, paradigm or framework for their lives. And it becomes central even to the gospel for them. They'll Mm -hmm. start insisting that uh, the results of good leadership should naturally come to them. They'll, they'll kind of want to, this is something we've talked about a lot before the idea that um, people who are committed to the idea of patriarchy, Uh, but haven't yet learned how to be leaders have a tendency to want to command leadership rather than actually being leaders. So they want the results of, you know, respect and dignity and special treatment and that kind of thing. And if you're in a cage stage, they'll often think about things like being called sir or being served first at the table. And at the same time, they don't necessarily see the need to actually work to merit those things. 
they'll spend a lot of time also on edge cases. This is very common. If you're in a cage stage, your mind, because you're in this kind of radical mindset, you tend to go out to the edges and the extremes. So you'll be asking questions like, is marital corporal punishment permissible? Can you have multiple wives? Does marital rape not exist at all? Um, should women be allowed to vote or inherit property or drive or work or go to university? Can we arrest women for wearing yoga pants in public? These are the kinds of questions that cage stage patriarchalists this want. This kind of questions I get in my email box all week long. And this I, is why we're addressing this question because people I, might think this is funny, but this is this is real. I'm always hoping that you're going to be the one to respond to it. I look at it and I think, <laughs> man, I hope none because they'll send it to the men at it's good to be a man.com and we'll both get it. And I, I'll have my fingers crossed. I hope none jumps on this one. <laughs> so, but yeah, this, this, that's great. What else? Men, men who are in a cage stage, they usually are, they're wrapped up in their own little world. And so they often won't keep their wife in the loop on what they're reading, what they're learning, what they're thinking. And they're, they're not just wrapped up in their own world, but they also recognize that what they're reading and thinking is pretty crazy and that their wives are not likely to respond well to it. And so they'll try to hide it from them rather than sharing what they're thinking in order to kind of slow down and bring their wives along. They kind of speed ahead and that really tends to make things worse. Um, they, your wife is not going to be reassured by the fact that you're essentially um, <laughs> treating her like a madman character and racing ahead into this wild unknown uh, that, that's the opposite of what you need to be doing. Um, they also, because of the this mindset, they also try to kind of justify what they're doing by minimizing or automatically doubting or denying uh, any of the kind of accusations that get made against them or any accusations made against anyone like them or um, any accusations that basically just are going to undermine their worldview. So any any kind of evidence that is going to attenuate their position and slow them down, they want to put that aside. So you, you often see that with... Um, you know, the idea of the believe women and me too movements, um, a cage stage patriarchalists will see zero merit in that. Whereas anyone who's actually been involved in any kind of ministry or um, just general life um, is going to recognize that on both sides of the question, there are actual abuses. So men do abuse women and women do also lie about men abusing them. A person in a cage stage is going to turn that into a black and white. Oh, no, no, it's, it's all nonsense. Women are always lying. Men don't abuse anyone, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, it's oversensitive, that, that kind of, yeah, it's not sexual harassment. You're just being oversensitive. And often people in a cage stage will have a weird obsession with returning to a previous time. So this is probably where the, the feminists claim, oh, you just want to go back to the 1950s comes from. There really are some guys who who see the 1950s as a kind of golden age. Yeah, you see and, this in that sort of trad movement on, on Twitter, or Instagram. Not that some of the things they like in of themselves aren't wholesome or good, but it, it goes like you is a basic fetish almost like you said yeah so it's not always the 1950s it's just it, they'll pick some time or times that they think represent a, a better um a better relationship between men and women 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 were more submissive it, it, you know it might be a different location like indian women are submissive or east asian women you should go to east asia to find your wife um or the victorian era was so great but trust me the victorian era was not so great 
And this is usually done with obviously very little actual historical knowledge, because if you knew more about these times, you'd recognize the problems with them. And you'd also recognize that they actually led to the kinds of times that you now hold to be so terrible. Mm -hmm. I think I never went through a cage stage when I became a Calvinist. Uh, And I became a Calvinist er, like early 2000s, like real early, like probably just as I got married. So about 2002, 2003. And then I finally admitted it in 2004. But what happened is I started hanging out with a friend of mine who was reformed, but was deeply into evangelism and hung out with a lot of different people and was easygoing, nice guy, not arrogant at all. And would say things, didn't pick fights with me or anything like that. And I was kind of going through a difficult time in my life. And so it was he, and we really kind of bonded during that time. And I had already been reading the church fathers, but it was books where the, the internet was just really becoming what we know it to be today. And I think part of what kept me going from going through a cage stage as a Calvinist is that it happened in relationships. So in real life, it happened through kind of slow knowledge, the knowledge is gained slowly through books and conversations over a long period of time. And I think when I see cage stage happen, it, it it's one of two things. It Someone rushes to it out of a sort of trauma. Something's gone really wrong. They had a, a divorce where they lost everything. They lost access to their kids. Uh, the church didn't stand by them, or at least the church made them out to be the main villain in the case, something like that, or uh, their wife cheated on them, just something bad happened, right? I see them get, they rush to it. And when they rush to it, they do a deep dive, right? They're listening to hours and hours and hours of this guy or that guy and, and consuming large amounts of information very quickly. Or I, or I find someone that's, something brings them to a point where they really want to understand masculinity and again, they do this really uh, quick, immersive study of the topic, but rarely is it in the context of relationship. And so one of the things you're pointing out in these characteristics, and I should say to anyone that's listening, Nan is not saying that a cage stage patriarchalist has all of these characteristics, but these are some of the characteristics that you see in someone that's in this phase or this stage. Anyway, I should also say that sometimes people don't leave the stage or the phase. And often it's because what you're talking about with this kind of sudden intellectual immersion without a relationship to kind of slow it down and put it into context happens online. And you get into forums where that kind of thing just gets reinforced. So there's never anything to slow you down or move you back into a normal relationship with other people. And so you get stuck in that cage stage where it's just a, like an echo chamber. I think Goodwill Hunting is about this. I've thought about this. So think of the famous scene in Goodwill Hunting. Ben Affleck's trying to pick up a girl in a bar. This guy from Harvard or Brown, I can't remember, whatever, some some know-it-all wannabe scholar tries to make Ben Affleck look bad. He's like quoting all these obscure historical facts. Genius Matt Damon, janitor, shows up, schools the guy, 
and says, yeah, you're going to say this. And next you're going to say that. And after that, you're going to say this. And a year from now, you're going to be thinking this, right? So Matt Damon demonstrates that he's way ahead of this guy in all the facts and information that he knows. Okay. So that's kind of like new red pill people arguing with older red pill people. But then Matt Damon comes face to face with this character in Robin Williams and Robin Williams knows a lot of things, but he actually has experienced life. He's known love. He's loved a woman. He's been next to a woman when she's died, right? A wife that he's stood by. And he has a sort of real world knowledge that Matt Damon doesn't have. The, that other guy might just have gotten it through a couple semesters, like, you know, freshmen's at college always take one class in philosophy and lecturing people on whoever, whichever the philosopher it was that they took to. Right. Um, but, uh, but really Matt Damon's no different than that guy. He's still, all the information he has is not, he hasn't arrived at it through direct experience, just reading. And I think that's what I see with a lot of these people is that they've either been formed by negative experiences and come to some of this stuff that confirms all their negative experiences or they have no experience or very little real world experience. And because of some fears that they have, this confirms that their fears are true. And I think the key thing is working this stuff out with your wife, with your buddies in real life, slowly digesting it because there's a lot of truth to be gained from a lot of the sources you and I have read, but man, it can go a really destructive, uh, destructive direction. Like you've pointed out here, this, some of this stuff leads to the breakdown of marriages and guys will say, Oh, it's just cause she was a feminist. Well, the way you treated her kind of made her dig her heels in and with just a little bit of, you know, interpersonal skill, it would have gone a much better direction. So I think one takeaway is just to actually chew on and digest this and think about this stuff critically and try to apply it in real life and see how it goes. Yeah, it's a, often it's a distinction between propositional knowledge and participative knowledge. And we've got this hyper neo-gnostic online view of relationships and understanding anything, which has over time caused all the problems that we see in Christianity, but it's also over time caused just general problems with the way that people think about the world and thinking about the world in terms of just propositional. All I need is propositional knowledge. All I need to know is to understand this thing like from a book and participating in the the source of this knowledge, like in the in the actual relational context within which this knowledge makes sense, is seen as unnecessary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to say too much more on this, but I'll just say the mistake that they make isn't that a lot of the principles they believe aren't true. The mistake that they make is believing that these things exist in a vacuum and they don't, they exist in a world full of uh, all sorts of attributes, all sorts of uh, variables and characteristics that we don't understand and how all these things play out are, are surprising. And, and so the problem is they isolate these principles from other other facts, other truths. And that's why trying to work them out in real life is so important. You might not like the way things are, but the things are the way they are, you know, is that you got to kind of start to wrap your mind around how things actually work out. 
Yeah, one of the key things that people who are in the cage stage need to come to grips with is the idea that, um, well, the way that they tend to look at it becomes a very us versus their mentality, and it becomes very much focused on the external world. And so they become really passive, like this passive sort of center to all of the swirling information. And they ironically, especially for cage stage patriarchalists, ironically, they don't take on the key aspects of masculinity, which is an active self-differentiation from the world where you're able to see the things that are happening outside you and distinguish yourself from that. And then ask yourself, how am I going to act in this situation in order to make things better? And most cage stage patriarchalists, it's essentially a failure of leadership. They aren't able to actually be the leader that they need to be, which is why it's ironic. All right. That's a great point. So what, what do you need to know? The guy's listening to everything you're saying here, everything we're talking about. And he, he's thinking to himself, oh, my goodness, I'm in a cage stage. What does he need to know if he is, in fact, in a cage stage? Hopefully he has the self-awareness to be able to say, oh my goodness, I'm in a cage stage. <laughs> I hope so. Matthew Henry has some really helpful comments on, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians 16 on verses 13 to 14. He says, he advises them to act like men and be strong. Note Christians should be manly and firm in all their contests with their enemies in defending their faith and maintaining their integrity. They should in, in a special manner be so in those points of faith that lie at the foundation of sound and practical religion, such as were attacked among the Corinthians. These must be maintained with solid judgment and strong resolution. He advises them to do everything in charity, verse 14. Our zeal and constancy must be consistent with charity. When the apostle would have us play the man for our faith or religion, he puts in a caution against playing the devil for it. We may defend our faith, but we must at the same time maintain our innocence and not devour and destroy and think with ourselves that the wrath of man will work the righteousness of God, James 1.24. So what he's saying essentially is that in your zeal to defend what you see as the truth, what you've come to realize is the truth, you are going to be very tempted um, both by the desire to consume and devour the things that you are fighting against um, and the even the things that could be uh, reintegrated, as it were, to, to think in symbolic terms. You, you're trying to push away all these terrible things, but a lot of them could actually be reformed. So there's no point burning down the building when what the building needs is to be repaired. Um, and the other thing is that you're going to be angry. A cage stage is usually characterized by a fair amount of anger and resentment at a lot of the things that you've come to learn, which you think you should have learned before. You should have been told before things that you've come to see as highly unjust that no one recognizes as unjust or are institutionally unjust. And as, um, as Henry says, the, James 124 talks about the way that the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. It's really important to remember that, in fact, your anger, although it may be justified anger, it's good to be angry about things that are wicked. Working that anger out in a righteous way is very difficult, and it isn't the natural course your flesh is going to take. Yeah, I think that's good. I think that's true. Your eyes are open, and you start to see things, and you wonder to yourself, why did no one tell me this? And it's kind of like when you first become a Calvinist. And I know we have a lot of listeners that aren't reformed and aren't a Calvinist. Certainly don't want to alienate you. Uh, but I will say when I became a Calvinist, and I think you'd say this is true as well. Suddenly, something that you didn't see in scripture, you see everywhere. 
you know? And it's like, suddenly when you see intersexual dynamics, you know, you start to understand male headship, all these things, you see it everywhere. You see it in every movie, you see it in every commercial, you see it all throughout scripture. And certainly it's there, but because it's so fresh to you, it's at the forefront of everything. And you think, well, how could someone ever not tell me these things? And you definitely do feel betrayed a little bit or feel even in some cases a little stupid that you didn't see these things. And it it definitely can lead to a sinful sort of anger that doesn't accomplish anything other than making you look like an idiot. And I think a lot of people that go through this cage stage don't understand how they come across to people. What what should people be thinking about? Like how, what's some thoughts that a, a cage stager you're thinking, this guy's thinking, maybe I am a cage stager. How should he realize he's being perceived? I think that that's actually one of the most pertinent questions is how are you being perceived? Because you're going to, in this raw stage, your instinct is to say, I don't care. I don't care how people see me. I just want the truth. I am the one that's after purity and yada, yada, yada you do need to understand that you're going to be burning bridges doing this and that you're going to be, you're burning down the building instead of reforming the building. You have to understand that most people are going to associate the kind of language that you instinctively want to reach for. even terms like patriarchy. They're going to associate those things with a lot of um, ideas and concepts, which are actually not what you are talking about at all. So the idea of patriarchy, for instance, has been extremely uh, maligned and it has become conditioned into us through feminism that patriarchy is always a wicked thing. And they're going to see things, the kind of things you're talking about as anything that ranges from mildly, mildly cultic to openly abusive. Um, I talked to my wife about this because, as you know, I went through a bit of a cage stage with patriarchy myself. And that was at the beginning of starting our ministry and our ministry became for me a kind of a ministry of repentance where I, I learned to not be in a cage stage. And she told me that one of the teenage associations that she had with patriarchy was the above rubies magazine, which is this weird publication that her mother used to get and read with a certain degree of skepticism. And it had a lot of articles written by women on two main subjects. The first was that the, there was this joy in submission and that was largely about how they patiently waited and prayed for their unbelieving husbands to stop drinking, which didn't sound particularly joyful <laughs> to my wife. And the second topic was being quiverful, which is along the lines of we'd already had 14 children in 12 years and we were living in a shack on $18,000 a year. And I was severely depressed and we were tempted to commit the sin of birth control. But instead, God gave us a miracle preemie with complex special needs. And since then, my husband's been laid off. But I've learned to offer up all of my problems to the Lord. And it turns out that if you're spiritual enough, you can just dress all ki- all the kids in you know newspaper and live off rice. And it's a wonderful and you know the stories vary widely they're they're not always um, (laughs) that severe but basically the women always sounded the same to her they sounded like bland humorous martyred trying to convince themselves that they were blessed and she really wondered if any of them actually liked their husbands and this is just basically what she associated patriarchy with yeah and that's just because that's the only context in which she had seen it before so if you're going to be talking about patriarchy you have to understand that people have a lot of these kinds of contexts that they're coming And from. you weren't in an unhappy marriage. You know, you weren't in an unhappy marriage. Your wife loves you, you guys. You guys fit each other very well. Um, and 
I think that's key for people to understand. Even folks that you love that are happy to be married to you, when you start going through this transition, there's a lot that they won't understand. And it's not, it's not just because they're poisoned by feminism or anything like that. It could be, but, but that's not always it, that there are, uh, these labels have been applied to justify things that scripture does not commend, you know? And I think, you know, you say you're going through a cage stage and I remember that um, it was kind of funny. Like you were kind of cage stage and I was still sorting out my boomerisms, I suppose. Right. I still trying to like figure out who, who was full of what, <laughs> like I wasn't really sure. Like some of these red pill guys just seem like whiners to me. And, and I, and I was somewhat skeptical of some of the things that they were claiming. And it was helpful to have someone who kind of argued that case that I feel like we pulled each other towards what I think is a, a definitely a more balanced or even, even position. I don't know what you want to call it. But that was really helpful. I really think that's one thing that made our project kind of different than I've heard from people that it's good to be a man has its own sort of style or feel to it, feel to that's very different. And I think it's it really is because you and I were coming at this from from different perspectives with the same ultimate goal. And along the way, we've we pulled each other towards. I, I hate to say this because I don't think the truth is the middle between two extremes. That's not it. But we, we, we got closer to the biblical truth from these different perspectives and it's been very helpful. And I think if, if you go back and read early, it's good to be a man stuff. You and I would, would add an adverb here and there and some clarification, but we're, when you're in the process of writing and figuring these things out, you can't wait to have it all figured out. You'll never write everything. You'll never write anything. You know, yeah, so it's important to, have a, a, a good balance. You don't want to just write everything that comes into your mind. You do need to work through the stuff and writing is a helpful way of working through things. That's how I work through things. That's why our ministry can produce <laughs> a lot of work. I mean, yep. I think it's the same for you. You work through things, like everything that you, you think about, you write down and then you can just turn yep. it into content. That's right. And that's very helpful. But if you're going through a cage stage, it's a really good idea to not write in anger. It's a good idea to sit down and spend some time thinking about it, write it out, write out what you think, and then don't necessarily publish it, sit on it for a while mm. and work through it with people that you trust rather than just putting it on the internet for everyone to see. Let's and, um, give some advice real quick to the marriage guys out there. You, you as, as someone that's gone through this, that's thought mm. about this. I mean, you and I, you and I have read Reddit and all these blogs. These folks, folks are always sitting us like, you should read Dalrock. We're like, do we've been reading Dalrock for 10 years? You know, all these other, you know, Return of the Kings, whatever. You know, I, Roosh, I knew Roosh V back when he was still a pickup artist, long before he became some wannabe Roman Catholic convert. Um, we've been reading this stuff for a long time. You've gone through this. You've processed this. What would, what sort of advice or counsel would you give to the married men out there in relation to their wife as they're processing this stuff? The first thing is that you don't want to dismiss their concerns because simply saying that they've been conditioned by feminism, even if it's true, isn't going to actually 
achieve anything except drive her further away. As you said, she's going to dig her heels in. If she doesn't see, you know, a lot of people um, in Christian marriages who really do submit to scripture, they're regenerate people, they submit to God's word, um, they believe in the authority and sufficiency of God's word of their lives, and they want to do what God wants them to do. If you tell them, oh, well, you've been conditioned by feminism, they'll be like, well, no, I haven't. You know, I don't see it. it that's the thing about conditioning is that often you don't see it. If you just tell them that they are disagreeing with you because they're feminists and they've been brainwashed, it's not going to achieve anything that you want to achieve. It's going to drive them further away. Whereas if you work through the issues with them, you go back to scripture and you talk about the things that you learned, here's the evidence, here's, um, here are the patterns that I'm seeing, then that helps them to come along with you and to see what you're seeing. And it opens up the relationship again and says, this isn't an us, this isn't a me versus you thing. This is a, here's something new that I'm learning that I want you to come along with because you're my wife, you might help me. I want us to understand this together. And I recognize that it's a difficult thing and it's emotional, but we can do this together. So understanding just that element is really important, but also understanding the, this gets back to the idea of leadership, knowing what it means to be a good leader especially in a marriage means knowing what it means to be a good husband, which means knowing what it means, what the difference is between men and women. This is something you ought to be learning in your cage stage of patriarchy is understanding the psychology of women, knowing that your wife is going to be extremely anxious about this and easily hurt by it. It's your duty to live with her in an understanding way, according to first Peter three, uh, not to put your marriage on the rocks by letting her imagination run wild with worst case scenarios. So you especially need to understand that speaking against things like one-itis and soulmates, while technically true, can easily be interpreted by your wife as my husband sees me as replaceable or just interchangeable with anyone. Any woman could be his wife and it doesn't matter. He doesn't think it matters who I'm married to, uh, who he's married to. And, you know, if he, if I died, like my, I'm the wife now, if I died, my husband would just take up with someone else without any regrets for my special attributes. Um, I, it, he, it wouldn't even phase him. That, that's the way that that kind of language can come across. Uh, I'm not a soulmate. Therefore I'm just interchangeable. That, that's a kind of category that because of the conditioning of Hollywood and feminism, that, that's the way that people tend to interpret those kinds of statements. So you need to be able to work through your wife and say, that's not what I'm talking about. I, I love you. And I value your specific attributes. I'm glad that I married you specifically. I wouldn't, in, I wouldn't change you for someone else, but I do think that if I had married someone else, there are other women out there that I could be married to and be happy with. And there are other men out there that you could be married to and happy with. And there isn't some kind of, in the, in the providence of God, you need, you need to balance this as well. Maybe we didn't balance this enough in our book. In the providence of God, there is one person that you are meant to marry. God has found right. uh, and designed one person in particular who you are going to marry. And mm -hmm. he has set things up so that that is going to happen. But I think we'll talk, have... we'll talk about that in the sequel. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll yeah, we down. will indeed. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's actually a good point. That's something that we do need to talk about in the sequel because it is important to understand the, the providence of God in these things. But that doesn't mean that she is like the perfect woman for you and there's no one else that could ever marry you. Um, it's kind of like saying if, if you have to declare, I am the prize, you're not the prize. Yep. These guys that read like Rolo Tomasi and Rolo Tomasi's whole you know, Rolo Tomasi, I have a complicated relationship with his writings and stuff. I know some of his ex-friends who really dislike him. I do think that a lot of his observations at a really raw, this is how people are as opposed to how people should be, 
level are probably right. Um, but he, he teaches men to think them, think of themselves as the prize and not the woman as the prize. I was always a little annoyed by that. Um, I do find that guys that have a real low view of themselves, you know, they're kind of the nice guys we've talked about that are begging for validation and affirmation from a woman. But let me ask you, if you're a blue pill guy begging for affirmation from a, from a woman or a red pill guy demanding for affirmation from a woman, I am the prize. What is the functional difference? Either way, you're not getting the stuff naturally that you want. And that's why I think you and I keep kind of coming back to this issue of leadership. And we've even had people say to us, at least to me on Twitter, that a, a, a husband doesn't lead his wife. She doesn't follow him, right? He commands her and she obeys him. And he's like, where do you see that in scripture? I'm like, well, God is a wife to is or a husband to Israel. And, and he calls Israel to follow him. Bam. What more do I need? I could give you more. But like if God leads Israel and she follows him, why can't a wife follow a husband? But if you're like out there demanding these things, a woman's thinking, why? Well, I do have sex with this man. I did have his children. I do feed this guy. And now he's looking at me and demanding, you know, telling me I am the prize or demanding these things. Put yourself in her position. Like have a, have a little bit of a perspective as, as a leader. Like how would you interpret that if that switch happened all of a sudden, you know? I'd actually say that it's a fundamental law gospel confusion. When you look at the way that God gives the law in Exodus, he brings Israel out of Egypt. He proves his worth as a husband to Israel. And then he says, here are my commandments. Because I brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, you shall have no other gods before me. And then he gives all the rest of the Ten Commandments. Whereas what a lot of red pill guys, people in, especially people in a red stage, red stage, a cage stage, want to do is they want to say, you shall have no other gods before me. And then they don't even think about whether they need to bring their wife out of Egypt. They don't, they don't do anything to, to make themselves prize, as you say. Yeah, the grace, the, like that's the one reason we know the Mosaic Covenant is a gracious covenant. God saved them. Exactly. He loved them. He redeemed them, right? And, he, and, um, and that is certainly an attribute that should be modeled in, in our headship and as a husband. Right. So... Well, Part of the part of what I've been talking about and circling back to it is understanding your wife and how she's going to see things. Um, I actually asked my own wife about this. You know, when we were going, when I was going through this cage stage, what were you thinking? What was what was on your mind? And the one of the main things that she said was that it was very. Um, it caused her to be very fearful, which is natural because women are more prone to be fearful, and a change like this is it's not a minor thing. It's a very significant theological shift. And it's also a shift that has wide ranging social consequences. It's not something that she should take lightly and it is natural for her to be afraid. So it's natural. For instance, my wife told me that she was afraid that we would become social pariahs. And as it transpired, that is what happened in our church. We became social pariahs. She was afraid that I would become more extreme in my views. And I already had some views which were regarded as fairly unusual. And that if I was willing to adopt what she saw at that time, she no longer does, but what she saw at that time as a very extreme radical kind of view, then maybe I would be willing to adopt all kinds of other wacky ideas like um, flat earthism, 
for instance, or kinism is something you often see associated with patriarchy. Like what if my husband's becoming a kinist? And it's not, not technically a problem for us. I think uh, if you trace our ancestry back, you'd find that there's a lot of tribal overlap, but um, you know, we know people who are, um, who, who have interracial marriages in New Zealand, there are a lot of Maori and uh, a lot of white people marry intermarry with Maori that that could be a problem. Um, so she was afraid that she was going to end up like one of these kind of prairie muffins, you know, denim skirt wearing haggard wife with the personality of dishwater. And that I would start complaining like a lot of red pill guys about how um, she was too indoctrinated with feminism and wishing that he'd married a younger, more submissive, less educated Asian wife. And that we would lose the connection that we had built up over many years. I think we'd been married for 12 years, probably when this happened. So we had, you know, lots of in jokes and, um, a, a strong emotional bond and all kinds of shared connections, which naturally build up over time in a marriage and that those would all get lost. And she'd basically become like a cardboard cutout and we'd stay in our strictly defined lanes and only love each other in some kind of dutiful abstract sense, rather than in the sense that we had come to actually love each other in the way the Bible tells us to love each other. And she says, you know, a lot of those fears were nonsense. They were stupid. They, they didn't, they were irrational fears, but they were fears that were partly fermented by her trying to understand what was happening and turning to the internet and going to a lot of red pill blogs and seeing the kinds of men there that she was terrified of me becoming. And then exacerbated by the fact that I didn't communicate properly with her at that time, what I was thinking, what I was feeling. And so she had no idea that those fears were actually ill-founded. I have heard a lot of guys in the red pill, married guys, when they're kind of going through the manosphere red pill early phases, that you're you shouldn't tell your wife about these things, that you should hold it all back. Um, in retrospect, was that would you advise that? What would you advise? No, I would say that it has never been a good idea for me to get really far ahead of my wife in what I'm thinking. And because it's always led to that problem. It's like when an airplane lands and you see the smoke come off the tires because the tires aren't spinning and it's going so fast. You want the tires to be spinning when it hits the ground. It's like that. You don't want, you, you don't want smoke to come off your tires when your wife hits the ground. Yeah. So I would say that you do want to be talking to your wife, but you want to be wise about it and insulate her from like, look at what you're reading and say, what parts of this really are crazy and what parts are going to look crazy and what parts are actually not that crazy at all. And talk to her about what you're thinking, but have spend some time thinking about it yourself first so that you're not just, you know, here's my chaotic thought process. I have no idea what's going on. It's all just completely new to me. Let's dive into the maelstrom together. No, you still need to be exercising some kind of leadership. You need to have, processed some of this stuff so that when the maelstrom hits her it's not going to be so severe but you do need to be on the same page yeah this is part of the problem so it's so difficult when you have a public platform and write a book so we wrote a book for men and i've always been blessed by the number of women that have written very positive reviews and and emailed us and told us how uh, how helpful it was so awesome but a lot of the uh (laughs) A lot of the reviews I've read by women 
you know, I could tell that they just didn't want to read a book. <laughs> That's four men. Oh, it's just rude. I don't like the tone. I kind of feel like, man, they should have saw what it was like before we went through the several edits. If they think that's intense, they have no clue. But I think as a man, we filter some of the extremities, some of the difficulties of life for our wife. That's what it means to be on the borders. That's what it means to be out there. That's <clears throat> we, you, we can deal with war. We can deal with death. It's hard on us, but we, we shield our wife and we shield our children because we want them to be protected from that. So they, so we can preserve us. I don't want to say innocence, but uh, the gentleness, the kindness, we, we need that back at home. And I think there's a, a, a level of selfishness and it's a lack of wisdom in allowing that stuff into your wife's life unfiltered. And I do think it's wise to talk to them, but as as you're saying, you do need to filter it for them. And filtering requires a level of slowness in thinking through these things. That's actually an interesting analogy that you used about going to war. That that makes me think. Imagine if you went to war, and you know you were you were at war for a year, and you came back, and it had completely changed you. And in that year, you'd never written a letter to your wife. Imagine how hard it would be to return to married life and what a shock it would be for her when you come back and you're a war grizzle veteran and it's, you're totally different how you were before. Now, if you were writing her letters and you wrote every day about everything that you'd seen, that would freak her out just as much. You know, you're describing all the death and all the bodies and how it's messing you up and she's freaking out about that. But if you spent a week pondering, reflecting on your experiences, coming to grips with them, and then you put them into a letter for her, and you you thought about what you were writing in order to try to express clearly what's happening, but in a way that doesn't just give her all the gnarly details, then over time, you, you've written 52 letters because they're 52 weeks in a year. She's got plenty of information. She's come along with the journey with you, but you filter the journey for her. And when you get home, she's not completely befuddled by what's going on. Yeah, it's good. I like it's it. a bit like that. So what uh, you and I talked about this a little bit, What what's some next steps? Well, you want to, um, in addition to all of what we've said before, I think it's important to balance the very generalized rhetoric they're going to read online where it's all generalizations, you know, all men are like that, for example, is a very standard one that you'll read. Um, balance that by referring to the actual behavior of women in your own life. Because if you start reading a lot of red pill stuff, you'll start to recognize patterns and you'll say, yes, I've seen this in real life. I've seen this in real life. And then you'll see other stuff and you'll be like, I haven't seen that. And this is actually something that helped me a lot when I was going through my cage stage was that there would be a lot of this all women are like that stuff. And I would think all the women that I know are not like that. And if you know a lot of regenerate women, that's probably going to be the case for you as well, because the Holy Spirit actually does things and sanctification is real. And all women are not like that. They might have those instincts, those tendencies, but many women have learned to overcome them and to put them to death. So being able to reserve your hostility for sin and not for women in general is really important. And along with that is the idea that you shouldn't focus on either extremes or on hypotheticals. You need to actually take the knowledge that, you are, that you're gaining and make it practical. It's okay to ask questions, 
but if it's going to freak, freak your wife out, um, if you start talking about arranging marriages, you know, for instance, then maybe leave those <laughs> kinds of questions for later yeah. because they're not actually important right now. Like, even if it's a valid question, should marriages be arranged? Well, it's a valid question. Should women be allowed to vote? It's a valid question, but there's no practical benefit to asking those questions right now. You need to work through the basics first. What are the key issues that you need to work on right now? What are the things that you can actually do that are going to have positive changes in your life? So let the theoretical or the long range issues take a back seat and then put the knowledge that you're gaining to good use. Get off the internet and start doing the manly things that you're learning about men doing. Get fit, get a real job, get good at your hobbies, um, repair your house, uh, repair your card, wh whatever it is, you know. And that will help your wife to see that you're not being a hypocrite because hypocrisy is probably the biggest problem in a cage stage is you've got, you're big on talk and you're very short on action. So I if think, you start. Well, what I want to say on that too, let me just say real quick. I think when you do that, when all those things are up front where you see immediate change, immediate benefits, first off, if a husband starts getting healthier you know, I have up on my wall in my office, what my family needs most is a godly, healthy, present me, right? So I want to be godly, healthy, and present. When a woman, when a woman sees you become more godly, healthy, and present with your family, then she starts to think, what's this all about? And I remember right before I converted, my father had been an alcoholic and he used to, he used to get drunk in this fall asleep in front of her house. I grew up in a, an apartment above a bar um, and I'd go down and cover my dad up with a blanket. Right. And then one day he stopped drinking. He just stopped and he started going to this Pentecostal church. It did not convert me, but I did think, okay, this is, there's something real here, something powerful here, powerful enough to get him to stop drinking. I think when you get those things out in front that you're talking about, you right really prioritize it. And these are these good benefits that affect the whole household. I do think that is a form of practical filter. When you sit down and she says, so what crazy thing have you been reading? And you say, well, I'm, I'm thinking through women's suffrage, you know, thinking through these things, you know, these women, when you get to know them, were actually kind of nasty, terrible people. And I don't, don't know if they really cared as much, you know, I think, when you say something like that after you have become a more a godly, healthy, present version of yourself, I, I don't think you're going to get the same response from the woman that you would had you not. You know what I mean? And because you want to bring these people along with you and we just get so far in front of them. And when it's so theoretical and detached and they can't see it because it's all the changes happen in your head. And they haven't seen the change work its way out into your finances, your health, your, your family disciplines, et cetera, et cetera. It's hard for them to get there. But for you, man, things have clicked and things that are making sense that haven't made sense for a long time, but they're still out there in the dark. And I think the practical change is kind of a, like a light that lights the pathway to those other things. So I just think that's key. It was very much key in my situation. My wife was very concerned about all the things that I was going through. And then I started to, especially as we started to work together and I saw the, I was really attracted to the positive articulation of man, manliness. What does it mean to be a man biblically? Not just why is feminism bad, but what should I be doing about it? 
And I started doing family worship and I started to get our finances more in order. And I started to take care of the house better. And then my wife was like, huh, maybe there's something to this masculinity stuff. My husband is being a better husband now. He's improving. And a lot of that stuff, unfortunately, happened. It was clear for her, but it wasn't clear for a lot of the people that I had already turned off with my rhetoric. So I would post things on Facebook and people at our church would see that and they'd be like, this guy's going nuts. And then, then they would unfollow me. They didn't want to see that kind of craziness. And then they wouldn't know about any of the changes that were happening in our household. They wouldn't know about uh, how I had attenuated any of my views. And so they would just assume that I was just continuing down that trajectory instead of that things had changed at all. And that was, um, I, I, I mean, I would certainly do things differently now. Uh, I, I regret a lot of the, the way that I went about things was very unwise. And unfortunately, part of going through a cage stage is that you have to learn leadership. You don't already have it because if you already have leadership, you often tend to recognize, you have the self-awareness to recognize that you're in a cage stage and to not do that. I don't know. I, I don't know that I went through a cage stage in patriarchy. I think though, it was, it was quite a shock to realize how far gone we are as a culture, as a church, you know, and I think I've had a lot of leadership in my, in my life. I've been really a leader in the church since I was really young. And even for me with having the leadership, it, it was really, it was a lot to take in. <laughs> it was a lot to realize that the whole church is basically feministic misandric really does have a hatred for men and i have a a soft spot in my heart for people going through a cage stage i think that's why you and i connected like all the things you were upset about i was like yeah that's real <laughs> you know and i was mad like why don't people see this why is why is no one doing about this and that's why when some people push back against us working together, I was like, no, non loves his wife. We've talked like I never I've never heard you say a bad word about your wife to me in our entire relationship. Right. Like it's always you you love Smokey deeply. And so had you been talking smack about your wife. That would have been different. So I would say even with your cage stage, it was a ideological cage stage, but you never hated your wife. You always loved her. And I think that's to me, it, I don't know. I think, I think coming to see how far gone things are, no matter who you are is jarring, but it's especially jarring if you don't have lots of influence, if you don't have kind of influence and power over your situation, it feels especially, you feel especially powerless to affect change. Yeah, very true. Well, aside from not being a hypocrite, the only other thing that I would say in terms of if you personally are in the cage stage and you're not currently in a relationship, I'd say you want to sort yourself out before you get into one. It's a really good idea to have figured things out before you try to start a relationship with someone because you don't want to be in a situation where you need to lead a woman through the kinds of issues you're working through, but you're not actually her, her husband yet and she's not your wife yet. Um, I think it's a probably a, a recipe for just kind of a really volatile relationship that is likely to implode. It's a good idea to figure out where you are before you try to lead people to to that point. What if you're a what if you're a wife? What what, what should a wife do if her husband is in a cage stage? What would you tell a wife? 
I think there are a few things I'd I'd tell her. The the first one probably would be to call for help. Uh, I don't mean that in a funny way. What I mean is that cage stages, if the person in the cage stage gets the right help, it's temporary. He doesn't need to be put in the cage forever. You know, he's he's not a lost cause. So it's a good idea to talk to other men in your life, especially pastors, if you have good pastors. Um, or men that your husband is on good terms with. And the reason that it's a good idea to do that is because it's going to be very difficult for your husband to hear what you are saying, especially if it's a a patriarchy cage stage, even if it's something like Calvinism or whatever, um, it's still difficult for men to hear this kind of critique from women and especially from their wives. Uh, It's something that men, a good husband cultivates the ability to hear these things, but it takes time. It's in my experience, it's been very difficult for me to hear them from my wife. Don't, if you're a wife, it's better to not spend a lot of time directly engaging unless your husband is initiating that engagement because men are designed to submit to other men and not to women. And so if there's something that your husband is actually wrong about, if he's going through this cage stage and it's you know he's dealing with it badly, then he needs other men to tell him that. You're not constitutionally able to rein him in and he isn't constitutionally designed to be reined in by you. He's going to try to argue with you. And if you argue with him, it's going to hurt you because fighting when men and women fight, it hurts the women a lot. It can hurt him too, but it's going to hurt you. Um, the other thing I'd say is, well, there are a couple of other things. Firstly, don't let this become a defining feature of your lives. Talk to your husband about other things as well. Even if it's a defining feature of his life, it doesn't have to be a defining feature of your lives. So don't let his frame completely override your marriage. Um, you want his frame to be corrected over time and you need other men to help do that. But in the meantime, you can talk to him about other things. You can maintain a certain amount of normalcy in your life. You can enlist him in his role as a teacher of scripture. Um, you can enlist him in his role on issues that are unrelated to masculinity. You can talk about other doctrines. Um, you can talk about, I mean, even when it comes to masculinity, you can ask him, you know, how are we going to fix the house? Um, do you see your position as a husband is being related to fixing the house or fixing the car or making a garden or, you know, whatever the case may be, try to find things that you can work together on. Um, one of the great things that Smokey and I did uh, partly because of the pandemic. Um, I, I don't know if I was really in a cage stage anymore, but one of the things that we did that really helped us as a couple was that we started a garden together. And uh, that was a really good um, group project where we had a, a mutual vision and we felt like we were really achieving something productive together and the kids could also be involved. The final thing is, it's a really bad idea to complain to your girlfriends about your husband at this, especially at this time. In general, it's a bad idea, but especially at this time, don't vent your fears to them because it's going to turn into a mutually reinforcing fear group. Um, And not only that, but it's going to color their opinion of your husband for a long time to come. So when he gets out of his cage stage, as he hopefully will, they are going to have a hard time believing that he's changed, that he's over that. They're going to see the cage stage as kind of defining of his personality. And they're going to be suspicious of him potentially forever. Who knows? Um, you don't, you don't want that. You don't want your, your girlfriends to be constantly thinking, is, is she okay? Is her husband you know, still like this? Is, is what she's saying? She says he's changed, but what if she's just got, got Stockholm syndrome now? You know, this is how our culture has conditioned women to think. You don't want that. When he gets out of his case stage, you 
don't want them to be thinking that he's still in his cage stage. You don't want them to be thinking that he's in a cage stage at all. You, you want to be um, protecting his reputation as much as you can um, while not just engaging in delusion. Mm-hmm. Just it's, it's the same principle that we've been talking about here. Just as the husband wants to take the long view with bringing his wife along as, as a leader, a wife wants to take the long view with, with helping her husband. Right. And we, we need the help of a woman sometimes, right? That's why God gave us a helpmate. And it's far beyond a helpmate helps us physically, spiritually, even emotionally. She is a help to us. She gives us wise counsel. Uh, that's what uh, a good woman is. It says in Proverbs 31 that his, his, the husband's heart trusts in her, right? And so I think as a woman, what you need to realize is that there's a Lord willing, there's another side to this, that it is truly a phase that people go through and you can help them go through this stage and get to a more mature biblical patriarchy, biblical leadership, biblical masculinity, like biblical uh, fatherhood, being a husband, all these sort of things that once you have that, the fruit of that, the blessing of that is, is intense. It's incredible. And so a wife does need to take the long view. Emily and I, and not everybody's in a church that can do this, but Emily and I have had a practice of having one or two person people, excuse me, one or two people that we can talk openly about any facet of our marriage that we want to. Um, there might be, there might be one or two things that's totally off limits, but we do have people we can trust in, but you've got to be very careful and who you you choose to to share these things with. Um, so I would just say, uh, if you're going to share any of these things with another woman, it would be good to run it by your spouse and vice versa. And, and just know that generally it is a bad practice to share the negative aspects of your husband or wife with someone of the same sex of your same sex. And I would, like I was saying, like one reason that I trusted you is that you didn't, you didn't appear to be in an unhappy marriage. <laughs> Had you been in an unhappy marriage, it would have been a different thing. And I wouldn't have trust you. But that wasn't, it wasn't the case at all. And so I just think that's key for the ladies out there to be very careful in what you say. Women just think of snake your telephone, not snake telephone. When you tell a story, you know, whisper it in an ear, they whisper it in another ear, they whisper it in another ear, and then it's this whole nother word, right? These things get exaggerated over time, and it's not wise. But not everyone that listens to this podcast is married, and even fewer are wives. So what would you say to guys who listen to this podcast, and they've got some friends that are kind of in this patriarchal cage stage? What would be your counsel to them? first thing that they want to do is they want to hold up a mirror to the guy in the cage stage and ask him how he compares to his own standard of masculinity. So this gets back to the issue of hypocrisy. Most people in a cage stage are going to be afflicted with some kind of hypocrisy because their vision is outstripping their own abilities. So you don't want to let him get away with just focusing on the negatives of feminism. You need to focus him back on the positives of masculinity and 
encourage him and exhort him and even rebuke him if necessary to be exemplifying those positives. The second thing would be to help him to spend time around godly women, if you know any, hopefully you do, hmm. observing the fact that they actually exist. These There are women who are not like that, as red pill people would say. Let them let him see how they relate to their husbands. Let him see that they really are submissive. Let him see that they are intelligent and wise and that they have real contributions to make um, both in the society of their marriages and in the society of the church and in society in large. And finally, I'd say it'd also be wise to try to get a bit of a handle on where he's spending his time online and the kinds of people that he's forming relationships with and try to steer him away from certain kinds of people. So obviously you want to be steering him away from people who are like radical red pill pundits who only ever talk about one thing or only ever have one view, um, especially if they're speaking very negatively about women, that's generally a, a bad indication because it means they don't know any godly women. Um you also want to be steering him away, uh, in my opinion. And this is, this is an idea that also came from my wife. There's a certain kind of woman online who is like a weird groupie for patriarchalists. This strange conservative right-wing woman who makes it like a competitive sport to be on the side of the patriarchy, no matter what. And she gets all mouthy. The irony, the irony is these women are usually very mouthy and brazen online about how terrible feminism is and how terrible mouthy and brazen women are. You want to be steering him away from that kind of woman because that kind of creates a weird self-perpetuating feedback loop that's not very healthy. Um, you know, if they're talking about how they make sandwiches all day for their husband in the nude because they're a trad wife, that that isn't a very healthy kind of person to be around. Not a great influence for a man in a cage stage. So th those are the two particularly bad influences in a man's life that I'd try to steer him away from. Just say to him, look, do you think these people are, you know, normal people? Are they the kind of people you want to be like? Um, do you want your wife to be like that? Or do you want mm -hmm. your wife to, to be like a Titus two sort of woman? And <laughs> do you want to be like the, do you want your wife to be like the Proverbs 31 woman or like a trad wife? It doesn't even what a trad wife was like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 So much of this is so made up so much of it's imaginary. That's exactly it. It's, yeah. You don't, be lopping on the internet it really is i think the internet internet so we have tyrannus hall for men and we've we've grown to care deeply about a lot of those men some of them who are listening even now are kind of annoying but i've learned to love them and uh and we've learned to love them because we've we've talked to them on the phone and we've become much more uh, involved with the, in their real life. But for the most part, internet communities and stuff are, you have to view them as mostly supplemental to real life. So like real life is food and, and internet is creatine. It's extra vitamin C, right? It's, it, it, it's good. It's strengthening. It has a purpose. It's strong. It's awesome really is God, the internet's a blessing from the lord like we shouldn't hate technology what the last thing we need is this sort of weird attitude toward technology but we have to understand what it is and what it can do and what it isn't and what it can't do and i think when you're going through this early phase you find all of these people that you can filter for 
on the internet that agree with you and tell you all the things you want to hear or all the, or confirm all the feelings you're having and all the real people, people in real life don't. So all the people in the internet are awesome, red pill, cool dudes. And the people in real life are, and then guys like you and me meet these awesome, cool red pill dudes and they ain't so awesome. (laughs) And they have not integrated all these principles into their life. And their marriages are a wreck. And they have a lot of problems because they're people. They're normal people. And But online, you can present a very particular version of yourself. You can edit out details and whatnot. And I think that's important to remember when you're reading these blog posts or whatever. Some of this is people, this, uh, they're theoreticians taking things out. And that has a value. Uh, of a sort, but uh, all these things have to be worked out in real life with real people. So get your supplement, think about that stuff, but weigh it, weigh it out in the ins and outs of daily life. Do you think that's fair? I think that's very fair. And I hope this has been helpful to both men in cage stages and women whose husbands are going through case stages and men whose brothers are going through case stages. (laughs) I think it will be. Well, until next time, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love.